0: And uh, I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. We're uh, launching a new five-part series uh, this morning that I'm calling Splashes of Grace and Truth. And we're going to look at vignettes in the life of Jesus and see what we can learn about Jesus who John says in John 1.14 was full of grace and truth. My son, my two sons-in-law, and I have a group text that we engage in, and it, li- it uh, typically uh, the text messages that we send back and forth to one another revolve around all things National Football League. Uh, we're all football fans, and so we're back and forth, and it's it. I mean, they fly on a Sunday afternoon when we're in. Uh, the month in the fall, I mean, the texts are flying back and forth. It's just great back and forth. Well, recently, as it so happens, there were some coaching changes in the National Football League. And, And it's interesting, in sports, in business, and even in some churches, when there's a new coach or a new CEO, and sometimes in some churches, a new senior pastor put into place, it becomes the responsibility of that coach or that CEO, or that pastor, to assemble their team of assistants. Uh, Coaches will hire assistant coaches and coordinators. The CEO is going to hire his CFO and his COO and, you know, chief financial officer and organizational officer and executives. And, And in some churches, the senior pastor brings with him his executive pastor who helps with other hires when they have a large team. And that team is responsible they're responsible to help carry out the mission of winning games. They're responsible to carry out the mission of more sales. They're responsible of carrying out the mission of whatever the vision of, of that particular church is. And so they expand their reach. Years ago, many people tried to make out Jesus to be the epitome of a business leader, and there were books about how he gave us principles for being more, better managers and better CEOs, and I don't want you to hear me going that way today. But what I find in Matthew 9 that we're going to be in today is Jesus did assemble a team. He uh, pulled together some people who were very, uh, most unlikely to be part of this team, they weren't the stars uh, that uh, you would want, but yet he pulled together a team to uh, uh, to carry out his mission. And his mission was great. His mission was ultimately to establish and to build what we would call the universal church. And he chose 12 individuals to go with him and to launch the church. 12 individuals who were going to... Uh, take and multiply everything that Jesus had taught. Today, we're going to look briefly at the team, but we're actually going to focus on one individual. One individual that, um, by virtue of reputation, reveals that unique mix that we see in Jesus of grace and truth. Now we've jumped into the story. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 9, and I'm beginning in verse 35, so we are at the very end of Matthew 39 of Matthew 9, verse 35, we're at the very end of Matthew 9, a lot has happened. A lot has already happened in Matthew's gospel. Jesus already has a, a group of disciples following him. Uh, and, and remember, anyone who follows Jesus is a disciple. I'm going to show you a, a, an idea, a word here that Matthew uses that helps differentiate all of the disciples from the 12. Because so often we say, well, Jesus had 12 disciples. No, Jesus has millions of disciples. Because if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, believing what we celebrated at communion, that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again, you are a follower of Jesus. And that's what the word disciple means. It means someone who follows someone else. But by the time we get here, Jesus has he's given them a mission about the kingdom of heaven. We call that the Sermon on the Mount. They've uh, they have seen him calm a storm. They've seen him drive out demons. They've seen him heal a paralyzed man. And by the time we get to chapter nine, they've seen him heal a woman who had a, a an issue of hemorrhaging for twelve years. They've seen him raise a young girl who'd been pronounced dead. And, and so uh, they've seen him heal a blind man. They have seen a lot. And so when we pick it up in chapter 9, verse 35, we see Jesus going through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news and the kingdom of healing of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus is dealing with people. They're coming to him. They're bringing disease to him. They're bringing the sick. They're they're bringing lepers. They're bringing those who are demon-possessed. And and he sees them and he has compassion on them. And that, that word that's translated compassion is a term that refers to the Inward parts of a person. A word we would use today would say he had a visceral response. It was a gut level response to them. Maybe you're able to relate to that description if you've watched the news and you've seen these people leaving Ukraine and you've seen the bombing and you're just like, oh, something's got to be done. You know, a few weeks ago, we had the Winter Olympics and there was a situation with a 15-year-old girl on the Russian Olympic Committee who was supposed, to, she, was the, she was the favorite for the gold medal. And there was so much pressure surrounding her because all the adults in her world had let her down. And so she, you know, there was that whole incident with the, the uh, substances that had been given to her that were illegal and there was an investigation. And she gets on the ice on that night to skate for the gold medal And she falls down twice. And I'm watching that. And this grandpa is having a visceral reaction. Especially when that poor little girl, a year older than my oldest granddaughter, comes walking, comes off the ice, tears streaming down her face. And her coach begins to coach her up. Why'd you fall? I mean, I'm, I don't speak Russian, but they were saying she's, you know, she's coaching her up, and she, you know, and be strong. And it's like, no, I wanted to reach through that screen and grab that little girl, give her a grandpa hug, and say it's okay, you're not a failure. Charlene can tell you. I had this visceral reaction. And when Jesus saw the crowds. And he saw that they were, as Matthew says, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. No direction in life. He had a visceral reaction. He wanted something to happen. And so he says to those that are around him, the harvest is plentiful. Folks, there is need all around. But the workers are few. Jesus looked at that and in his humanity says, I'm one person here. I need help. Pray that God's going to send workers to his harvest field. Now, in a minute, we'll look at the team that Jesus assembles and that team, part of their task will be to go to the brokenness of the world around them and to bring the life-giving message of compassion and of a compassionate and soul-healing God. But I think there's something here for you and me. You see, it doesn't take a lot of observation to see that we still live in a broken world. We and we can have several responses to brokenness around us. One response is to isolate, right? Well, that's their problem. I'm going to live my life and I'm going to surround myself with people that think like I do, that act like I do, that talk like I do, and we're just going to have this own little little Christian utopia. Uh, we can choose to criticize people for their poor choices. you know. Well, if they hadn't have done X, Y, and Z, they wouldn't be in that situation. So you know what? That's their problem. It's not my problem. We can... Follow Jesus and choose to enter the brokenness of those God brings our way. Now, you know, this particular little verse here, these two verses, verses or this verse, verse 37, has, I, and remember, I've been in church since I was seven days old. So, you know, I've heard this used, add in time and time and time again about going somewhere way over there. The harvest is plentiful in China. The harvest is plentiful in deepest, darkest Africa. Let's send missionaries over there. Jesus wasn't speaking in a foreign context here. He was speaking in a local context. He wasn't looking at people that were far away. He was looking at people that were right there in front of him. And he said, there's the brokenness. And and so these words are spoken as Jesus is looking at his neighbors and his fellow citizens and his friends and his family. And I would simply say this to you and me this morning. Jesus invites you and me to step into the brokenness of our world. And, And I know what you're saying. Oh, Pastor Scott, it's just me. And I know it's a tired old story, but it fits here so well. Stories told of a storm on one of the coasts. And and, and that storm had come at such a time that it had washed up thousands of starfish up on the beach. And there was a man taking a walk after the storm, and he looked along the horizon. He saw this little boy coming to him, and, and the little boy was picking up a starfish and, tossing it back into the ocean. Bending over, picking up another one, tossing it back into the ocean. And the man walked up to the little boy, you know, it's a Son, son, there are far too many starfish out here. You cannot save them all. You're not going to make a difference. The boy looked at him and picked up a starfish and threw it out in the ocean. He said, just made a difference for that one. And, and, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Stepping into the brokenness of our world, it just means doing what God places in front of you to do, one person at a time. You step into the brokenness of your world when you, you sit down with a coworker and you just listen to them as they pour their heart out into you. you stepped into their brokenness. You step into the brokenness of somebody's world when maybe you go over and you pick up a neighbor's garbage can that has fallen down in the wind and, all, and you just kind of clean it up. And, and when they say thank you, you say you're welcome and maybe there's a conversation that strikes up because you reached into their life for just a moment. It's not hard to step into the brokenness of our world. It just simply means opening our eyes and looking around. So what Matthew does is, is he shows us how Jesus assembled a team Assembled a team to help him begin to step into the brokenness of the world and to train this team to do even more that, that, that he would even do. And so Matthew's kind of matter-of-fact here. You know, Jesus called his twelve his twelve disciples to them and gave them authority. Uh, and so Matthew's very matter-of-fact. Luke gives us a little more definition. You see in Luke chapter 6 verses 12 through 16 we discover that before Jesus called these together and gave them the designation of apostles he spent the night in prayer. He spent the whole night in communion with his heavenly Father making sure and, and you know just kind of working through the list who was he going to choose? I mean this was going to be a very important team that he was going to put together. And Luke gives us, in fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke will give us the designations of the 12. But we see here Matthew verse, chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. The word apostle means sent. So he calls 12 followers and designates them sent ones, apostles. And he gives the names Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. By the way, Matthew puts them in pairs. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These guys were as different as they could get. They were on different ends of the social and political spectrum. They were an eclectic group. But this morning, I want to spend the remainder of our time responding to one question. Why did Jesus choose Judas? Jesus chose Judas. After a night of prayer, with the heavenly Father, Jesus looked to those who were following him and he pointed to Judas and said, I want you on the team. Why did Jesus choose Judas? I would tell you this, the choice of Judas was deliberate. And it's very interesting when we think about Judas. Judas had witnessed all the miracles that had preceded this time. And, and we read on in Matthew 10, and let me just do that. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any, enter, enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Judas had all of that power. He could do great things. Judas healed the sick. Judas cast out demons. Judas healed leprosies. Judas proclaimed the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. He did all of that. Judas helped feed the 5,000. Judas was there when Jesus walked on the water to the boat. Judas saw a man who was blind from birth given sight again. Judas saw Lazarus raised from the grave. Judas listened to every parable, that both those that are recorded and those that we don't have recorded. And he got all of the explanations just like the other followers of Jesus. Judas for 3 years spent roughly every day with Jesus. Judas was entrusted to manage the money. He carried the money bag. Jesus washed the feet of Judas. And according to Luke 22, Judas was still part of the very first institution of what we have celebrated this morning communion and yet if you read Matthew's gospel Mark's gospel or Luke's gospel when they list all of the disciples they the apostles they end with this Matthew ten four, Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Mark three eighteen, Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Luke six sixteen, Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Why? Why did Jesus choose Judas? What can I learn from that choice? Well, I haven't had privy. I haven't opportunity to sit down with Jesus and go, "What were you thinking?" But I've had opportunity to pray and observe. Scripture. Let me share with you several observations, and here's the first one. In the choosing of Judas, we discover God's grace, love, and forgiveness is available to all. The compassion of Jesus, that visceral reaction he has to those who are helpless and harassed, is not limited just to a certain group of people. I believe firmly, as long as a person has breath, they have opportunity to receive the gracious, loving forgiveness of God. Judas was offered consistently the grace of our Lord. Even in that final meal, that final Passover meal, whereas I've already said, Jesus washed all the disciples' feet, including Judas. We, we have that scene put together for us in John chapter 13. It is believed by those who studied these things that the table that they would have sat at was an oval table. It was a large table. It was low to the ground. And then around that table were kind of like couches. And you would, you would recline on your usually your left hand and you would eat with your right. That being said, then we we believe that the way the lineup was, that Jesus is at the head of the table reclining and to his right is John and then to his left was most likely Judas, both sitting at honored positions. So that when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and they go around, and Peter, who's sitting across the table, motions to John and says, find out who it was. It is believed that John, being the youngest of all the disciples, maybe a lean back into Jesus and said, who's it going to be? And Jesus said, it's the one that's going to take the bread. And we look at that and think it's an announcement. I don't think it was an announcement. And so Jesus dips the bread and leans over to Judas. Whatever you do, do quickly. Wow, Jesus knew. And yet, I think in that moment, had Judas decided, ah, I'm not going to do this. Someone would have, and we'll see that in a minute. But he, Jesus was offering him that grace, that, that opportunity. Judas was deceitful. Matthew 26, when Jesus kind of tells them all, someone's going to betray me, he's one of the ones that said, well, you don't mean me, do you? Can't be me. Uh, Judas, uh, although he managed the money, John 12, 6 says, he also helped himself to the funds. So there's this Judas who's seen all of this stuff, who's seen all of what Christ can do and still kind of taking care of Judas. Yet he was consistently offered grace, love, and forgiveness. And I need to remember that. I need to remember that when I look around my world. I, I think you and I need to remember that when we look around our world. I need that reminder when I start to get critical of somebody else. I need to be reminded when I get frustrated by the selfish choices of others I need to be reminded that God's grace, love, and forgiveness is available to all. Even people I disagree with, God still is offering His grace, love, and forgiveness to them. There's a second thing we discover. In choosing of Judas, we discover that all God's plans will be fulfilled. All of God's plans will be fulfilled. In the 41st Psalm a psalm of God's grace and forgiveness. In the middle of that psalm, in verse 9, David, in experiencing his own need to show grace, writes this, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. And in John chapter 13, verse 18, as Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to be betrayed, he actually quotes that verse. That's a fulfillment of psalm that's a fulfillment of God's plan of God's prophecy in John 17 12 when Jesus is praying his great prayer and he's praying for the disciples and he says not one of them was lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. One of the reasons Jesus chose Judas is because it was part of God's plan all along to have someone who was a close friend to betray him. And yet, that in no way absolves Judas of his choices. It's a reminder that God brings about his plan. God is not thwarted or not confused by world events. God is not thrown off by your choices or my choices. God is not going to bring about God is going to bring about his plan and nothing and no one can get in the way. And I don't always understand how God works. I don't always understand why God works, but I can understand that God works and he will bring about his plans. I mentioned last week I think it was in my prayer that I was Struggling. Struggling with world events right now and just, you know, praying. And, 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 and I hope you're praying for peace and praying for an end of the atrocities. And, and, and I remember reading that passage in Amos 1 where God acknowledges his, his understanding of world events and then his response is, and I will. And there's always a punishment. There's always a justice. There's always a change. I will. Those I I will statements. And God brought all of those I will statements to fruition. And I need to be reminded of that. When I don't understand things, I need to be reminded that God is a God who's constantly working. And all his plans will be fulfilled. And in the choice of Judas, I see that all of God's plans will be fulfilled. But in the choosing of Judas, I discover a third thing. Faith in the person and work of Jesus is a choice of the heart. Judas had all the evidence anybody could ever ask for. Judas had all the experience you could want. Judas had a front row seat to the glory of God displayed through the Son of God. Yet he still made a choice to betray. I honestly believe had Judas relented at the last minute, somebody else would have. Somebody else would have stepped up. God's plans will be fulfilled. But up until the moment of betrayal, Judas had a choice. It was a choice of the heart. You see, faith is not just based on evidence. It's based on a choice of the heart. I would say to anyone, faith is never only a matter of evidence. Now, here's the deal. That doesn't mean evidence is not important. When I see evidence of God at work, when, when I've seen lives changed, when I've seen clear and direct answers to prayer, as a situation this week where I saw God answer somebody's prayer specifically the way they had asked and I celebrated when I see that it, it strengthens my faith. My faith is validated and it's strengthened when I see God's work but to put one's faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross begins with my heart. It begins with a choice of my heart. Judas had experience. Judas had evidence. He had more than enough evidence and yet he chose himself. Finally, in the choosing of Judas, we discover there is a vast difference between regret and repentance. It's very clear in the Scriptures that Judas deeply regretted his choice. We find those details recorded in Matthew 27. In Matthew 27, verse 2, we we read that he was seized with remorse. He, he, He actually went back to the the leaders, and he threw the 30 pieces of silver that he had been paid for the betrayal on the floor. He said he didn't want it anymore. He told the leaders he had sinned, he had betrayed an innocent man. And then what Judas did, he went away and hanged himself. Now, I need you to hear me clearly this morning. Mental illness is real. And some people in agony And great emotional pain take their own lives, and it's nothing short of a tragedy. But the tragedy of someone taking their own life is not the unpardonable sin. In fact, according to Mark chapter 3, verses 22 to 30, the unpardonable sin is attributing the power and work of Jesus to Satan and saying that is the work of Satan, not the work of God, and rejecting it. So... For this instance, we talk about one man and one act. You see, the significance of Judas just going out and taking his own life is that he took away from himself the opportunity to repent and be forgiven. He showed great remorse and regret, but he didn't repent. I would say, In a sense, Judas didn't even have the faith to believe God would forgive him. And so in this specific evidence, the taking of his own life was just a way of saying, I would put it this way, trying to absolve his own sin. But you and I can't do that. Our sins are too great. Judas didn't repent. Therefore, he didn't experience forgiveness you see, there was another betrayal that night. During those last hours of Jesus' life, Peter betrayed him publicly three times. I don't know him. I don't know the man. I don't know him. And the, Luke tells us that Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. I think it was that look of compassion, that look of pain. Peter went out and he wept bitterly. He was, however, restored to ministry. Why? Because he received the forgiveness that was offered to him. I am convinced of this fact. Had Judas not taken his own life, had he come back to Jesus with the same remorse and sorrow that he shared in Matthew 27, Had he confessed his sin of betrayal and repented of that sin, I think he would have been forgiven. God can and does and will forgive anyone for any sin when there's a true heart change of repentance. But just feeling sorry for yourself isn't enough. Judas took that away from himself. And you know, as I thought about it, it just brings us full circle. In fact, I want you to think about our key points in reverse order. There is a vast difference between regret and repentance because repentance is based on faith in the person and work of Jesus, and that's a choice of the heart. And when I understand that all of God's plans will be fulfilled, including his plan of forgiveness of sin, including his plan to reconcile humans to himself, as a result, I can realize that God's love and grace is available to all. And because of that truth, I can join Jesus in the invitation to step into the brokenness of my world. We're just a few weeks out from the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I want to encourage you to pray a simple prayer. It's simply this Dear Lord Jesus, based on all you've done, open my eyes to the need around me that you have uniquely gifted me to meet. Dear Lord Jesus, based on all you've done, open my eyes. To the need around me that you have uniquely gifted me to meet. The answer to that prayer, I would say, is probably not going to lie thousands of miles away across the ocean where you don't speak the language. Now I think the answer to that prayer probably will lie in your own home or family. The answer to that prayer may lie in your neighborhood. It may be at your workplace Maybe somewhere in your community at large. But there is an answer to that prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus asked us to pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest field. That's you and me. To go into the brokenness of our world. To rub shoulders with people and to make a difference for Jesus. We're the workers. Where we go this week, that's the harvest field. And the fact that Jesus chose Judas reminds us That God's grace, love, and forgiveness is available to every single person we meet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this display of the grace and truth that was bound up in Jesus. The grace that he showed to somebody that everyone else, even us, have seen as just bad but you kept showing him grace and love and forgiveness. I ask, Lord, that we would learn the lessons of the choice of Judas and allow them to impact our lives and allow them to change us so that we can be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.